Hello, and welcome back to A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today, we are going to embark upon a certain kind of inquiry, an inquiry that I wish more humans would engage in more regularly as part of, you could say, the normal human diet should be a, a time for reflection, contemplation, objectifying what is otherwise very subjective to our experience and to our feeling life, which is where most of us live most of the time. Isn't that the case? You know. You know what it's like. You feel your way. And if you're not feeling your way and having a reaction or so to pretty much everything, we are having some kind of a thought about everything. Rarely are we simply just plain old present to what's going on. Or standing outside of ourselves, so to speak, doing that kind of a mental gymnastic, a fantastic exercise, by the way. You don't have to go to a brain gym to do it either. You can do it simply through the function of your imagination. It's one of its great features. You can just kind of flip outside yourself and take a look at yourself from without, from the outside, externally, and look at your body. You can look at your feelings. You can look at your sensations. You can look at your thoughts. You know, this is all in the domain of self-observation and greater awareness. And it modifies so much. For instance, our stress levels, our suffering, our anxiety, our fear. Because when we objectify something, when we stand outside of it, it actually changes. It modifies. You could say it's based on the same principle that quantum physics brought forward to us just approximately 80 or 90 years ago, not that long ago, which showed us that the observer is influencing the observed. He or she is not outside of nature looking in as through a looking glass but rather, we are actually part of nature and the observation itself. And our energy field through our eyes, through our ears, through our actual electromagnetic presence influencing the petri dish or a cell or bacterium or whatever it is, might be the external agent. Yeah, we are influencing on the level of cell, on the level of molecule, the level of tissue, of course, the level of organ, and the level of atom. Our observation will shift the behavior of the atom from a particle to a wave, maybe even from a wave to a particle. The point is at the very 
presence of, in this case, a human being. I don't know if they've done this with dogs, but certainly influencing the physical, material world around us constantly. And our conscious awareness of some matter, so to speak, is influencing that matter. Interesting. So it positions us in an entirely different way to the way we were all raised to think and programmed to think, not out of some, you know, nefarious plots, but rather through not knowing, simply not knowing. The people who were teaching us to see, to think, to observe, simply some years back in our childhoods, didn't know that our minds and thoughts and feelings are actually palpably influencing the world the world, the world, the domain of material, of physical matter, of the density, the contract condition of intelligence. If you want to call it spirit, you may do so as well. God knows, <laughs> for sure. <clears throat> but it puts us onto a kind of into a spectrum, a range of interactive, integral activity that, well, we don't really directly experience that much, which is why I'm bringing it up here now to take a look at this. So when I call tonight's show an inquiry into the plight of the human species, an amateur anthropologist's view, I should also say, I guess, an amateur quantum physicist's view and stress management consultant's view is because I wanted to position us the way we really are as part of nature instead of what we've been raised to think of ourselves as, as separate from nature. Descartes, of course helped to cement that idea in the Western psyche, the Cartesian model of observing nature as outside of ourselves. When quantum reality through mathematics proved in the early 1920s that that's just not so. We do not stand outside of nature. We are nature of no separation from. We're part of the entire, if you will, psychobiological machinery. Uh, Dr. Hubert Benoit, one of my great mentors, who wrote The Interior Realization, who wrote a book called Let Go, Lâcher Prise, The uh, Practice of Detachment According to Zen, said that 
we are but a metaphysical perspective inside of nature, in effect. That our view of ourselves is a function of our belief system, a certain program. That was in the supreme doctrine. In the interior realization, he said that there is an impersonal and a personal aspect of life, essentially of creation. Personal is our subjective domain, where we really kind of eat and live and sleep and rest and think and wonder and feel and enjoy and experience pain and confusion, uncertainty, love, humor, joy, the entire plethora of human experience. And then there's the impersonal, which is nature as machine, and an ecosystem, as we all know, has its own innate intelligence. The human body has its own innate intelligence, working with the emotions and the thoughts too, by the way, that are all part of the um, recyclable energy field in which we live. We say we are inside of, but we're also in another way outside of, but for convenience sake, we say inside of like the soul, we say, is inside us. In any event, I want to kind of reposition us because the program that we're living out of today is a program that has us with an arm's length relationship to nature and to each other, and it has us think about ourselves as separate. There are some wonderful texts, sacred texts, such as The Course in Miracles, that says that our greatest pathology is the false notion, the illusion that we are separate. And it's very interesting. And everything, all of our illness, all of our confusion, born out of this illusion of being separate. And that's the egoic character of our daily living. Now, one could say, well, isn't it obvious that we're all separate? We inhabit separate bodies. Well, you know, that's true on one hand, but untrue on another I don't mean left and right either. <clears throat> but on one hand, we we have this skin, a membrane, that has the appearance of separating us. But interestingly, the air is then also connecting us. So it depends on from what view you look at what's separate or what's connected. Technically, nothing is or could be separate. It's all part of a larger holistic gestalt, 
everything in the entirety of the universe is interactive in some way, shape, or form. It's exchanging energy, gases, vapors, fluids, electron exchange, you name it. The entire universe operates on exchange, on relationship exchanges. A smile or simply sitting still and feeling presence of another person or the presence of one's favorite pets or the presence of a flower that is odiferous, that has a beautiful fragrance that is wafting up into and through our nostrils. So when you look at life this way, naturally, truly, as it comes to us in nature, we can see it through the eyes of nature. But when we simply think of ourselves, quote, unquote, we miss it. We become somewhat narcissistic, somewhat solipsistic, somewhat blind to what is outside of us, which is why that mental gymnastic of stepping outside of ourselves is so very, very important for greater clarity. I would also say greater knowing, greater wisdom. It can come from that practice of inner emptying, deep listening, and standing outside of ourselves as though we could. And when we do that practice, we start to build a neurocircuitry around that practice, and it starts to deepen. So the effort, the muscle that begins to develop from that stepping out increases. Interesting. So let me come back to this inquiry into the plight of the human species. And as I said in this week's newsletter, for any of you who receive it, and if you don't, please go to www.abetterworld. It's on the right. It's free. Sign up. Join us. Become part of a better world community, a better world family. We're on the air. I am on the air every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Of course, I do know that most all of you listen in archive at your convenience while on the treadmill or sitting home eating dinner or um, meditating or instead of listening to some music. Many people listen to this show from all over the world and it's very gratifying to me to know that you are out there and absorbing these airwaves and these sound waves. And we're also on Monday evenings at 7 p.m. on television here in Manhattan, in New York City, community television. I've been on since 1993, every single week, producing and hosting a show that talks about these kinds of things, stress management, healing, solutions, people working well together, healthy relationships, 
the depths of consciousness, the heights of consciousness, spirituality, making the world work for everyone, looking at social, political, economic, financial injustice, and seeking to provide solutions to these issues and breaking things down into their component parts so solutions may be easier to come by and leave behind some of the complexity that tends to plague our brain, our mind, and keeps people rather frozen or stuck in place instead of moving forward because they fear complexity outweighs the importance of the simplicity of a given phenomenon or circumstance or condition. So these are the kinds of the things that we talk about here. Creative, progressive thoughts. So in this evening's show, holistic psychotherapist Mitchell Rabin, moi, viewing the human species as both an amateur anthropologist and a holistic psychotherapist, experiencing the impulse to render a diagnosis and recommend some remedies. After years of studying individuals, families, groups, corporations, larger collectives, as well as studying himself as another sampling of this very same species, he has a few insights to share, which, of course, I have been sharing. At the same time, Mitchell will offer what might be a few remedies to the current psychological conflicts, causing conflicts as well as some solutions to some of the larger health problems on the levels of the people and planet. This will touch upon the issues of governance, greed, power, confusion, and the potential of infinite intelligence and possibilities we all bear inside our minds, hearts, and souls. Sacred stewardship, compassion, biomimicry, galactic or universal intelligence, and indigenous wisdom will be woven into tonight's narrative. Whoa, I want to listen. Who's going to do that? Oh, I see. Tis I dare say that progress, that inquiry, that query has already begun. So, you know, to back back off a bit, you know, uh, toward the direction of rendering a diagnosis, you know, I don't want to use the DSM-5 or any such technical text as that. I want to just say that... <clears throat> When people step outside of their natural tendency to help one another, when people do that, life becomes a little odd and skewed, distorted. But when people stay in touch with the wish door for someone, help someone with a package, smile at someone walking down the street or in an office, 
extend a human touch, gesture of warmth, caring, kindness, compassion, humor, playfulness, a good idea, something that would be helpful. When we're outside of that, we get into trouble. When we're inside of that, things tend to flow very beautifully. Isn't that interesting? I remember being told of a study that was done with monkeys. Monkeys in the wild gather nuts and seeds and whatever food there is available, and they share it with each other in families and groups. They share. Share and share alike. That's right. And that's what they do. The experimenter brought bunches of bananas into a certain area of the forest where there was a large monkey population, and there was an abundance of bananas and what happened is the monkeys saw the bananas grabbed bunches of them and actually hoarded them something they had never ever done before but because they saw this abundance rather than sharing which was their natural way they took them and they hid them and were on guard about preserving them. It's very observation. And a telltale one, likely at that. So, when there's an abundance of that sort, rather than saying, oh my God, there's plenty for everybody, abundanza, instead, it looks like people resort to another part of their brain system, their reptilian brain, which still has a function, but here it's being utilized for hoarding and maybe even for fight or flight, some kind of uh, violent exchange to protect the hoard. So, I come back to this idea of the generosity of service. And it's an inclination. It's a very simple thing. It's, it's a gesture. It can be an act. It could be a prayer. But we're, when we're poised in that position, everything works well, fluidly, flowingly, and better than if we were, and all of us, were not in that position. Many years ago, when I was in Israel and Jerusalem studying, there was an interesting insight that the rabbis, where I was studying at this yeshiva for a brief period, raised. And they said, you in America are always talking about your rights. You have the right to free speech. You have the right to bear arms. By the way, I'm not sure that's a proper reading of that amendment, but we'll get to that another time. We have the right to be the 
way we are. And everybody is always saying that, enunciating what our rights are or should be. He said, but here in the Jewish tradition, we don't think so much about rights. Instead, we think about obligations. We think about what can I do to be a better human being? What can I do to be of service? Those are very different attitudes and postures than it's my right doggone it to have this and to buy that and wear this and go here and go there. It's my right. Instead, what can I do? What is my obligation to the human species and to sentient life altogether to create a stable, more secure, nothing is ever really secure, folks, a sense of greater permanence, a greater sense of sustainability and sustenance because that relaxes the person it allows the brain to go from the reptilian, rather primitive, safety, security, territoriality to a more elevated one, moving forward in life, so to speak. We move forward in our brain system to the mammalian, which allows us to have and experience love and nurturance and warmth and kindness and playfulness and humor, and even further forward to our uh, prefrontal lobes and neocortex, which gives us a higher level of executive function, of rational thought, of a relationship between the two hemispheres. So creativity, intuition, a sense of spaciousness in all domains, um, <clears throat> logic, all of these other characteristics of a human being, virtue, begin to show up. Reflectivity, a sense of connectedness, brotherhood, sisterhood, these are all in good measure a function of what part of the brain we're using. And when you go from the prefrontal cortex into the next brain, I call it, the heart, things really begin to harmonize. That's when the action really kicks off. That's when we are in a position to really evolve our species and express kindness to all other sentient beings on another level than what we have mechanically been programmed to do to date except that is for those of us who have stepped outside the box and have looked in or have been involved in teaching others to do same so we can build something called teamwork, a family affair, a sense of unity, a lack of separation, meaning the creation of a unified field, whether that's in a family or whether that's in a corporate setting among players on an executive 
management team. Do you see? It doesn't matter what the external context is. It matters what the internal context is and who we are and where it is we come from as we embark upon any human endeavor, whether it's taking care of our child or it's speaking to a colleague on the job about how to improve productivity and increase the um, quality of life of our, uh, of our staff. So what we're ultimately dealing with is people and then people and then more people. And how do we interact and how can we do so in a way that is always showing respect and appreciation, acknowledgement for what people do to improve the lot of each other and in the case of a company or a corporation, improve the lot of the corporation. It's something larger than us, whatever it may be, is where we generate the most, you could say, bang for our buck. So, when you look at governance, for instance, which I'll get to in a moment, I want to let everybody know you are listening to Mitchell J. Rabin. I am the host and producer of A Better World Radio and TV, based out of New York City. We so appreciate your coming to tune in and listen to such queries and inquiries and uh, flights of fancy and sometimes fantasy. And uh, to join me in what is an actually fairly thorough examination of who we are, what we are, how do we manifest, understanding our identities, understanding something about the way we attribute meaning in our lives, attribute authority in our lives, attribute the power of the life force itself and how we utilize it in our lives. It starts to get very interesting when we peel back the layers. We sort of deconstruct the assumptions we make in daily life, the implicit assumptions of our society. When we start to roll those back, we start to find some pretty interesting phenomena. And we're no longer limited in the same way. We become virtually liberated. And we can have a whole lot more fun in our lives. And on a professional level, we can become much more productive much more profitable while we balance the elements based on this notion of service. That is very much a bottom line here in today's talk. And when we look at the opposite of service, let's call that self-interest. And there, let's say there are two kinds of self-interest. One is the self-interest at the expense of anybody or anything else. You could say the kind of the Donald Trumps of the world, and there are so many right along with him. 
so many, unfortunately, in corporate mandated policies that shortchange the staff, even management, and the resources, natural resources in the environment. So there's a shortchanging of human resources and there's a shortchanging of natural resources. There's an exploitation, if you will. There's a lack of proper divine justice. And we all pay for that. We all pay. And the other kind of self-interest, yes, is what I would call enlightened self-interest. Enlightened self-interest says something more like, if you're happy, I'm happy. If you're doing well, I'm doing well. And if I'm doing well and you're not doing well, I'm not so well. I need you to also be doing well for my fullest ability to be well. So simple. So enlightened self-interest is really not that distinguishable from the first, which is service. I can say that I am in service to others and myself absolutely simultaneously. What an interesting view. That means we all win or no one wins. It's got to be mutual. There is an inherent, organic mutuality necessary for society to work, for a company to work, for a family to work. There has to be a collective mutuality thinking this way. Unfortunately, based on the memes in our society, people, <laughs> they're taught the me meme, me me. <laughs> That's right. That's not what meme means. It doesn't mean be doubled. <laughs> but you can see how that's gotten confusing. It's not about me. It. What's it? You understand. Life is not just about me. It's about us. It's about we. And when we can transcend that confusion, then we start to have a much deeper, richer, more meaningful, and much more productive and healthy life. Because anything that's not true actually causes a contraction in the body. And if the body is contracted, it's not open, it's not expanded, it's not feeling everything there is to feel, it's not sharing everything there is to share. It's in a different state. A contracted state in some ways is a bit of a sick state. It's a skewed state. It's a modified state from the unconditional openness that may well, well be possible, if at least on some good relative levels. I hope you're with me. When we look this way, everything changes. So when we hear, for instance, 
in the current election cycle. Me, 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 I'm going to fix it. If you elect me, I'm going to repair it. All will be well once you elect me. doesn't matter which candidate I'm speaking about. It's very (laughs) me-centric. It's very egocentric. And it's not true. Because neither one nor the other can do all that needs to be done. It has to be a matter of congressional consensus. And just... So, these are some of the things we have to look at. How do people speak? What are they saying with their words, with their posture, with their body language? And what can we do about it? How can we become a unified field? How can we become congruent in word and action? How do we create and maintain integrity, dignity, and a sense of play? You know, I'll never forget my anthropology teacher in college, my first year, invited us up to Toronto, Hotel York, a magnificent, enormous rather palatial hotel. And there I met the distinguished anthropologist, Margaret Mead. Well, Mario Professor. And he presented a paper on the anthropology of play. And what he said, and I remember this all these years later, is that animals in nature after they have et, after they have eaten, after they have drunk, after they have slept, after they have been sexual and reproduced, they play. Now, you can make a a good argument that the sexual part is a form of that play. You could even say some of the eating is part of that play, you know, because there's a tendency to have fun and there's a tendency to have to share. So even food could be a point of play. It sure is among humans, can be, and it can be among animals, mammals, primates. So point here is that Mario Bick taught us that play is an organic part of life among Many different species, play, running, tussling, (laughs) some form of competing, you know, whether it's for the girl or it's for the rope or the twig, pushing something across a finish line in one way or another. So this is interesting. It just changes the game again when you start to look at our primate antecedents being so dedicated to play. And we say, well, well, I'm an adult. I don't play. Well, no. You're closer probably to dead if you're not playing. Keep playing. It's the adult thing to do. 
anyway, of course, I'm having a little fun here. But, yes, that's exactly the point, folks, having a little fun. You know, if you really think about it, if you really listen in, you see that this is rather illuminating. Because we're not given permission to play much by the outside world. They want us to be in the beehive and making money for a company. And there's no problem with that. But inside of which, why can we not have fun making that money? Why can we not have fun and delight? Maybe it can be made into fun and productivity will increase tremendously. Wow. Look at bees in a hive. They're buzzing right along. Then they get to visit some flowers and inhale. Oh, that precious olfactory sense. Smell those flowers. Look at their beautiful array of color. Touch the texture of those flowers. Well, this is all very cool, isn't it? It's all very cool. So, if you want to talk about a world that works, if you want to talk about governance, changes the conversation. Why doesn't governance work well in any respective nation? Because there are special interests. And what is the favorite word? Me. We want that distinct from, exclusive from, others. Uh-uh, uh-uh. Slow it down. Let's be generous. Let's make sure everyone wins something. Let's understand that people have different needs, different groups, for different reasons, place of who needs what, and how can we share and how can we give. It changes the game. It just does. So, it sounds so simple. In some ways, it really is. In others, you can understand that there become greater layers of complexity. That's for sure. Just an interesting program comment to make of a news item I heard just today. Scientists fear that superbugs are gaining an upper hand because they have become resistant to today's um, antibiotics. And they keep getting stronger because the antibiotics aren't doing their job, because they can't, because the bacteria are adapting to, well, that's wild. So maybe there's something flawed in the entire nature of an antibiotic. Maybe what we need to do is build the microbiome, build the healthy gut bacteria that we know is gut-friendly, friendly flora and friendly fauna, <laughs> and bring it in 
so that our gut, which is where our immune system virtually completely lives, will be thereby strengthened. And that will allow it to deal with any virus or bacteria that may be coming along. That's basically the way the system, my understanding, works when it's being respected. So, that is certainly what we want. We want that respect. (laughs) So, just as an example, this, I don't know if it was the World Health Organization or another medical group, stated that if things keep going the way they are going now with resistant viruses and bacteria to antibiotics, well, viruses aren't supposed to be able to be overcome by an antibiotic, but yet they're given out for viruses all the time. Well, that doesn't make sense. I mean, how could a doctor not see that disparity? It's not an antiviral. It's an antibiotic. So much candy. All too often. So people have built up an immunity to some extent. And then the bacteria, which is eminently adaptable and mutable, then goes, aha, I've seen what you've done. Very clever. Try this, babe. And then it does its own thing and dances around the antibiotic. So that's what we're facing. What that esteemed august body stated is that if this is not dealt with, we're going to have an epidemic, a hundred trillion dollars in just the next few years. Wait a minute. Did I hear that right? A hundred trillion dollars? You betcha. So when we think about how we interact and interface with our lovely environment, we have to think all the way down to the level of bacterium. That's what. We have to learn how important we are to the process of life itself, to the development and the evolution we can refer to as sacred stewardship of our planet. And that is the name of the book I am working on right now, Sacred Stewardship, Awakening the Soul to Action. So I take this very seriously, folks. And while I am quick to play and have fun and make a good and bad joke, I understand the the gravitas of the situation in many ways. And it's way more grave than anyone really wants to think or behold or admit to or acknowledge. It just is. It just is. Are we going to get through it? <laughs> Taking bets here at a better world. Line up. Place your bet. Well, I believe so. I believe. Why do I believe? I have some evidence that supports. 
I have a lot of evidence that does not. For my life force and my time on this precious, beautiful planet, I wish to manifest a form, a thought form, that emboldens and dignifies and forwards and advances the action in the direction that we all feel is right in our hearts. So indeed, it takes a village or two or three, but it is truly incumbent upon us on all levels to bring this to fruition, to bring this manifestation about So, I feel that I have left you with enough concrete thoughts and practices, in fact, to really engage you on another level here, to play this game and look at ourselves, our destructive tendencies. I'm going to say, come from fear, which is a reptilian function, and the psycho-emotional function of that brain function is this sense through the mind, through spirit, in fact, that we are not enough, that we are not good enough, and that we are not worthy, and we are not lovable. Those are the building blocks of a world hell-bent on destruction, which is what we have clearly got. Amidst of which are those who overcame those programs, which may have been there from the beginning for everybody. I don't know. There is a negative bias to the brain. There is a fear-based bias to the brain until we consciously engage it see it, work with it, and let it go. There will still remain some bias. And the reptilian brain is not going to disappear, nor do we want it to. That's not the end desire at all. But proportion, Leonardo da Vinci talked about, proportion is the name of the game. And we want to proportion the reptilian brain with the mammalian brain, with the neocortex, with the prefrontal lobes, and with the heart. Yes, the heart brain. Oh, the gut brain is so important too. That becomes just kind of interlinked with the whole. And this is what I believe, folks, can really emancipate us as a species, and have us think about species instead of all the peculiar subsets like race. It's true, there's a race. It's called the human race. I don't know where we're racing. I think we ought to give that idea up. I don't like the word race at all. No need. Unless you want to have fun. You see, this is the way we're wired And we want to change the wiring, and we can. There's the phenomenon of neuroplasticity, which allows us to change our narrative. It allows us to change the game. 
It allows us to change the trajectory. It allows us to change from being, if just unconsciously, destructively bent to unconsciously and consciously, constructively, creatively bent, love-affirmingly bent. And that is how we create a better world. That is how we do it. That's how we populate the world with renewable energy platforms, with things such as pumped storage, also known as pumped hydro, to provide the battery storage needed for the proliferation and the flourishing of solar power, wind power, geothermal, grow hydroelectric, all user-friendly, photon-rich, wind-abundant, energy from the earth flowing energies to produce the electricity on which our society at this point rests. So this can be done. It is being done. A better world has a hand in it, actually. We need some more hands. We need to raise some money. We need some large sums of money to make this happen, as well as to bring water, potable water, to those regions of the world, my friends, that do not have it. And I want to let you know, this is the constructive paradigm. But we have to heal and resolve the seemingly inherent destructive paradigm, which emerges and arises from the unconsciousness and the unwittingness and the ignorance and confusion of our parents and our parents' parents and our parents' parents' parents. It just keeps going. They know what they know, but don't know what they don't. And yet what is known is passed on as the whole and full and utter truth. But it is not. It is a partial truth. And it may be a dignified and bold truth, but it's only partial until we recognize that we have this negative bias and we need to assuage it, neutralize its energy so that we can be heaven-bent instead of hell-bent. We will be loving-bent, compassion, and understandingly bent instead of destructive, which is depleting the richness of our planet. It is killing off large numbers of our own species, and thousands of others are going 
along and down with us. That's what we're facing. I am inviting you to take a look at why our society looks the way it does. And to the extent that we remain unconscious, to the extent that we continue to project, to the extent that we continue to allow the early programs and cultural conditioning to govern because we're not playing the game of stepping out of ourselves to look and hear and listen to our own voices as though from outside ourselves because we're not more uh, thoroughly examining ourselves objectively and the content of thoughts and feelings and sensations coursing through us every single moment of the day, we are continuing to destroy at a massive and alarming rate, one that no one can afford. Mother Nature can because she is the ever-ready bunny, you know. But that doesn't mean that she includes us. We are our own worst enemy. We sabotage. We sabotage. So, I think I've given you all some food for thought. And I think you can understand where the Trumps and the Clintons show up. And there is a small band of us, relatively speaking, but growing, I'm glad to say, of people who enjoy the authenticity and the intelligence and the heart with Jill Stein running for president in the Green Party. Oh, I know, I know you're going to say that she can never win. Well, yeah, that's right. If enough people keep saying she'll never win, she probably won't. But if, here's a perfect example of negative bias versus positive. If more of us turn around and say that we can actually vote our heart, our authentic feeling, and our authenticity invites the likes of a Dr. Jill Stein and other members, by the way, of the Green Party, because they stand for ecologically sound values. They stand for sustainability. They stand for peace as an affirmative state of world and mind as opposed to not war. That's like saying, I'm not sick. But that's not health, being not sick is a very low grade of health. Not war is a very low grade of peace. So, in honor of the International Day of Peace, in addition to the show we did last week with We the World, Rick Ulfick, Jonathan Granoff, and others, we realize that there is an enormous, enormous momentum toward the good, toward the creative, toward helping all, not just the few. This is our actual creative human anatomy, folks, according to Mitchell Rabin. Yeah, 
It's my diagnosis. We start with the negative bias and we cure it. Maybe that's what the Catholics, the Roman Catholics, call original sin. The sin is that, in Greek, we miss the mark. Maybe we are born with some sense of true original sin. Not that we're bad and immoral, but that as youngsters we don't get the point just yet. We're not able to hit the target just yet. But as we grow up, we start hitting the target, which means we're no longer sitting sinning, having nothing at all to do with the common, highly conditioned, highly programmed interpretation of what it means. As I said, many of you know the work of Maurice Nicole, who wrote a book on missing the mark. I think it's just called The Mark, and that's what the word sin derives from in the ancient Greek, as though aiming at a bullseye and missing the mark. That's all it is. There's no judgment, moral, ethical, or otherwise. Just simply an observation. Ah, you missed the mark. Do it again. Try it again. And this time, hit the mark. And you are no longer sinning. Anyway, I think you follow the point. So we can get on target and we can create a beautiful world. It's already beautiful. We can augment and enhance it. That can be the artist's way as a human being to augment and enhance the lives of each other and even the lives, the life of nature. We can do things agriculturally, for instance. We can do various augmentations that improve, accelerate, expedite. It's cool. I'm not talking about genetic engineering. No, 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 no. Let's not go too far. Let's not jeopardize our genetic code. I'm not talking about that. Heirloom tomatoes? That's another story. (laughs) You know, that's a much gentler approach of genetic engineering, if you will, you know. And we do need to make the distinctions between these. There's a very serious bifurcation between these two, which we can take a look at another time. But for all intents and purposes, I am talking about moving us toward the target of doing well by doing good, So we integrate our currency, our monetary system, right in, as long as we're going to have a monetary system. My dear friend Michael Tellinger the other day from South Africa, I interviewed for a second time on A Better World last week, and he said that according to Ubuntu, there is no need for money at all. That money was brought here as a tool of enslavement, by so-called higher intelligences that wanted to exploit the human mammal at the time for their own greedy ends. Well, that may be true, it may not be true. I don't really know. It's certainly a very interesting and even very plausible idea. But 
even without knowing the answer to that, since we actually do have a money system everywhere and barter in some places, um, we can use it in a way that's life-affirming. And that's really where I'm coming from with all of what I'm saying. So, well, listen, my friends, I very, very much appreciate your attention tonight, as I always do. I want to just remind you that you can uh, sign up for our A Better World uh, newsletter at www.abetterworld.tv or abetterworld.net. If you want any of my coaching services, consulting services, uh, my group work, go to www.mitchellrabin.com to learn more, but contact me directly at mjr at abetterworld.net. That again is my direct email address, mjr at abetterworld.net, or call at 212 0800. I advise you to leave a message. Uh, few phone calls are are answered directly due to the schedules around here. Uh, but in fact, um, couples counseling, corporate consulting, teaching, uh, stress management consulting, all of this is available through a Better World Foundation and contacting me at that number or that email address. And please remember that we are a 501c3. We are a nonprofit organization dedicated to providing quality media, education, education, services, and products through us all for the mission of creating a better world. And your donations directly help us achieve those goals as a foundation. There are also products of ours that you can buy for your health, for your joint mobility, for your beauty and healthy skin, and anti-aging for your longevity. All of it is part of it. All of it is good. So, said, I want to just thank you. Contact us here for any information about our BioCell product line and others. And we'll be glad to be of service. So thanks again. This is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World. Thank you again for joining. Take this link and send it out to your friends and family, colleagues, and get them educated about how to deprogram and reformat the hard drive, you know? Because, indeed, we better do that soon because we are contributing way too much to global heating and global cooling through climate change and that, my friends, is more important than anything else if we want to talk about longevity on this beautiful and precious planet. Thanks again for joining, and I look forward to seeing you all.